You might have noticed, uh, beloved listeners, we've already had two brilliant women scientists on the programme. Elise Bryce on soils and Toby Kears on fungi. And tonight we welcome a third. Dr Joelle Gerges is a climate scientist and writer at the ANU. She's a, a lead author for the IPCC's sixth assessment report and yet has found time to write two books and numerous articles, not just about the science, but about how a scientist responds to the research and communicates it to the world. Her first book, Sunburnt Country, The History and Future of Climate Change in Australia, her latest, which we're about to discuss, is called Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope. Now, I've been banging on about climate change since it was known as the greenhouse effect for about 40 years. So I'm delighted to be talking to someone who feels some hope for the future because God knows it's been a depressing subject. So welcome with your hope to the Little Wireless Program. Thanks, Philip. It's so nice to be here. Joelle, before we get into the science, tell me about uh, your background. I understand... You were born, or your father was born in Egypt. Yeah, so I have an Egyptian heritage. I was actually born in Dublin, uh, and my family migrated uh, to Australia in 1977. I grew up here, um, but I guess I have that sort of sense of um, understanding the vulnerabilities of the developing world, and I think that's something that I've really taken with me um, in my career as a scientist, uh, as I've progressed and, and really gone deeper and deeper into science. Now, your parents were passionate believers in the power of education. Yeah, my dad was really amazing. He was someone that he was one of seven children. He grew up on the outskirts of uh, Cairo and um, his family went broke during the Great Depression uh, and he really didn't have enough money even to to, to do very much, actually. And he couldn't afford uh, to pay for the um, university uh, exams uh, that they used to charge a fee for that. And he had to climb the fence and hop over there and, and do the exams. And he basically really built himself up um, and eventually left um, Egypt. Uh, and, and we ended up in Australia some well, years later. We're going to be talking a lot about tipping points as in this discussion. But for you, a tipping point was the 1994 fires. Mm. Yeah, I was, I was young and I was at school and I remember seeing these ferocious fires really uh, bear down on uh, bushland not too far from where I lived and I started to think about, well, what is it that causes this variability uh, in the Australian climate? And just seeing all of those um, ash falling uh, in our neighbourhood and burnt leaves and it really made me want to understand, um, well, what is actually going on here? Why is Australia so ferocious like that? And you did your PhD on? El Nino. Yeah, so I actually reconstructed a history of El Nino events. It's the largest source of year-to-year -year climate variability uh, on the planet. And so it was an opportunity to get a sense of what those natural cycles are like that cause a lot of droughts and floods in different parts of the world. Joel, give me an idea of the work that was involved in preparing the sixth assessment report released last year. Yeah, it was absolutely colossal amount of work. Uh, we had to sift through 
thousands of peer-reviewed articles and then uh, condense that down into these um, really intense chapters. Uh, and there were about 13 chapters in the, the volume that I worked on and each of those were 80,000 words each. So you're looking at a report of over a million words uh, <laughs> and it was a really extraordinary process. That report then went out to expert and government review uh, and all in all, we had to sift through and respond to around 75,000 different reviewer comments, which was um, quite a, a huge task, really. 234 scientists across the globe, time spent not paid but volunteered. Yeah, so all of us were selected based on our uh, contribution to the scientific literature and our expertise. But yeah, we were all doing this on the background of our um, day jobs, which for me, I'm a university lecturer as well as a research scientist uh, and having to get up at all sorts of hours to attend meetings, particularly when uh, COVID shut down our in-person meetings and we had to do everything online. That became really, really difficult. Um, but what really was extraordinary was the altruism of the group of people gathered from all different parts of the world, really working around the clock to produce the most comprehensive uh, climate assessment um, humanly possible. Are you working on the seventh report, Joelle? Oh, Philip, I'm still recovering from the sixth. <laughs> um, the seventh will come out um, probably around tw um, 2030. So right now we've just, it takes, uh, it, these uh, reports come out every sort of seven years or so. Uh, so we've just got one more volume in this sixth assessment report uh, and then basically it's really up to the world's governments actually to take forward um, our, our recommendations. So in a sense you're at another personal tipping point because now you want to focus your work on communication. Well, I feel like there's really not much more else I can really do as a scientist, I feel, except for share this information really far and wide. I mean, it feels like the most important book I'm ever going to write because if we think about the carbon budget, we haven't got another 10 years to waste. And so I could write another research paper or teach another university climatology course. But really the most important thing is trying to share that information with the broader community so we can have a think about what we really want to do about this. You were influenced by one of my all-time heroes in Rachel Carson, the author of Silent Spring, because she taught you it's okay to be emotional about your science. Absolutely. I mean, she's such an inspiration. She's a, she was a real trailblazer. And for someone like me, I think many of us feel a sense of grief around the loss of the natural world and the destabilisation of the planet that we're experiencing at an accelerating rate. But really, when you're a scientist, people expect you just to operate purely from a place of logic and reason. And I certainly do do those things in my work. But I also had an emotional response to the material that I was uh, collating as I was working on this UN report. And the other thing that really um, was unfolding as I was working on this is that Australia went through our black summer bushfires, where we saw 25% of Australia's forests burn in a single bushfire season. The koala on the east coast is now an endangered species. And then we've had seen the catastrophic flooding of the East Coast, which we're still recovering from. And so all of this was really playing out in real time. And for me, it was this real intersection of my personal life with my professional life. And I realised that what is the most important thing I can possibly do with my time right now? And it felt like write a book. How has your work impacted on your personal life? It's been really difficult, I must say, particularly as an Australian scientist working um, as all of this material that I'm 
that I actually have been studying my entire adult life is just really coming to life now. So there's nowhere to hide from it. And so there are days where it's really, really difficult um, when you can see these changes in our ecosystems and in, in our in the stability of our societies as a result of a changing climate. It becomes a, a real existential uh, exploration of what it means to be human at this moment. Day and night, I understand it. You suffer from sleeplessness. Yes, there's absolutely times where I wake up and I can't go back to sleep because I'm thinking about the work that I've exposed myself during the day. This was particularly the case when I was working on the IPCC. Um, some of those, uh, some of that material was really confronting, and certainly when I was writing writing my book, because uh, that was my way of emotionally processing the book. So alongside the facts and figures, it also has my personal response, which is something um, I hope that my readers can connect with. Well, that personal response includes uh, being overwhelmed emotionally when you're hiking. Yeah. So 2020, um, I went on my honeymoon and we were in Japan and uh, I literally just left and Australia was on fire. And as a media spokesperson, I I literally had to turn off my phone. I had the BBC World Service and lots of other people trying to contact me for commentary. But I was on my honeymoon uh, and as I was hiking through the Japanese forest, um, I just really was struck by how lifeless it is compared to the incredible and extraordinary Australian bush that we have here. And it really just broke me down and I realised that you know, the world is really changing in front of our eyes. And I really um, had a moment, I guess, where I, I could see my own country from this international perspective and realise that we have this extraordinary part of the planet that we're meant to be caretakers of. And and I think that is um, something that we really need to reconnect with, that, you know, climate change can seem like it's all doom and gloom, but ultimately, if you, if you boil it all down, it actually just comes back down to love and the things that we care about. The remarkably fluent Joelle, August, and uh, now let's talk about the way you've divvied the book up because I find this quite fascinating and rather beautiful. The head, the heart and the whole. So the head was really basically an opportunity to talk about the, the nuts and bolts of where are we at in terms of the climate crisis right now. And so I go through um, and explain the fundamentals of the earth um, in terms of all the different systems, how they interact and how we've altered them in terms of human activity. And so that's really just to give people a grounding of the real uh, take-home messages of the IPCC report. And so that's, but it is one thing to understand something intellectually, and it's another thing to understand it emotionally. And so part two is the heart, which is really looking at the impacts on people and places that we love. It's also look, thinking about the heartbreak of what, what it is that we have to lose and what we are losing right now, and what are we prepared to save? And then the whole really brings all of that together to realise that we need to connect our head with our heart. It isn't just this, we don't need to compartmentalise. It's okay to feel um, distressed about some of this really confronting material, but then as a whole, within yourself, but also within communities and, and starting to um, realise that collectively we have an immense amount of power. It's, this is an incredible moment in human history and how are we going to show up? Joel, we must have done a hundred programs on aspects of uh, climate change over the years, but there's a couple of sort of paradoxical truths that I think it's important to to communicate. Tell me about warm glacial periods. So the Earth has gone through 
ice ages and warm periods throughout our entire history. And so we have these really long-term records in both the sedimentary records and ice core records. And so we actually have had warm periods in the past. But what's really different about this particular period is that since the Industrial Revolution in the late 19th century, we've burnt so much carbon that it's accumulated in the atmosphere and it's altered uh, the chemistry of the atmosphere and also the way that the, um, the atmosphere uh, circulates around the globe. And so the difference between these warm periods, say two or three million years ago or even further back in time, they're not exactly an analogy for where we are today because there weren't humans altering the landscape in the same way that we are now. And so what is different about this period is that we have effectively altered um, the, the land surface and the atmosphere of the planet in such profound ways that it is, it's, it's really an accumulation of everything that humanity's ever done uh, to, to um, exploit the natural world. And that's where we've ended up. So these warm periods are natural and they do happen uh, in the past. But, but current warming is more than seven times faster and the current increases in CO2 are more than 50 times faster. Yes, thanks for bringing that out. Um, that's one of the things I mentioned in my book. So we are just accelerating these natural rates of variability just through human activity, which is an extraordinary thing to really come to terms with, that we are a geologic uh, force now on the planet. You know who'd love your book, and that's our old friend James Lovelock. Why does climate change affect different parts of the globe differently? That's a good question because some parts of the world might have ice sheets on them, other places have tropical rainforests and some areas are covered in ocean. And in an area like Australia, we are an island that's surrounded by ocean, so we're really influenced by ocean variability um, in our part of the world. But in the high Arctic, for example, where they have ice sheets, uh, they experience climate differently. So it's just that the, the planet isn't uniform. We have different land masses, ice sheets, uh, forested areas. And the urban heat effect. Yeah, and we also have cities, exactly. So um, a lot of people now live in cities. I think about 50% of the world's population now lives in cities and all those concreted surfaces actually cause an enhanced warming at the local level. So when you think about heat waves, uh, they can be amplified uh, during um, because of the, the fact that we're now a very much an urbanised society. We talked a little on the program a few weeks ago about zombie fires. Tell the listener about zombie fires. So zombie fires are effectively when you start to get fires burning into permafrost areas in the really high Arctic. And that's really of concern because there's basically twice the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere locked up in permafrost. And so when these areas start to burn, um, they're called zombie because they you, you can't put them out. And because the temperatures are now becoming warmer and warmer throughout the cool season, which would usually be the freeze season, these are starting to thaw out. And so you're starting to see uh, what they call these zombie fires. And that really is a major concern because it's just yet another sign that uh, the Arctic is shifting in, in really really profound ways and that has major implications for the global climate. You talk about polar amplification. Yeah, that's just a process that effectively um, says that that the, the concentration of ice in, in, in the polar areas acts as a big mirror 
And so we get these positive feedback loops. So when we start to see um, the ice recede, uh, you start to see more solar radiation absorbed up by the ocean, which then in turn melts the ice, and then you get this positive feedback loop. And that's why um, we tend to see more pronounced warming uh, in places like the Arctic, uh, because it's just uh, this sort of natural feedback loop uh, that's as a result of the configuration of ice and, and land. There was a news story in the last day or so about uh, glacial melting acceleration and uh, the almost certain outcome being a rise in sea level of one foot. Mm. Yeah, so a real concern for the climate science community is keeping the ice sheets stable. And we find that between about two and three degrees uh, of warming above pre-industrial level really starts to see instabilities in the Greenland ice sheet and in West Antarctica. And when you lose those, you really are looking at multiple uh, metres of sea level rise. Okay, let's talk tipping points. The, the melting of the Arctic sea ice has the potential to be a whopper. What are some of the others? Another one is the slowdown um, of uh, a an ocean circulation pattern in the North Atlantic, which effectively um, we'll see parts of Europe start to cool down. So that I'm sorry, slow down a bit on that. Explain yeah. the mechanism. Okay, sure. So effectively what happens is that... that um, Heat is transferred from the warm tropical areas to the, the, the cooler polar areas. And there are these ocean circulation patterns. And one of these major patterns uh, is, is in the North Atlantic. And when we start to see a lot of um, ice melting, you start to shut down that transport of warmer water uh, in the North Atlantic. And so what that will do, it, was actually, it will actually cause localised cooling uh, in the Northern Hemisphere and we'll actually see rainier conditions in the Southern Hemisphere. So this is one of these, um, one of these tipping points that people talk about uh, quite a lot. But another major one is um, the dieback of the Amazon rainforest and that's a really important now, one. Now, dieback as opposed to the burning. Well, yes. So we're talking about a fundamental shift in the, the conditions that the rainforest can either grow in or not. So if, if the rainforest is warmer than it's been in the past and it starts to be encroached on by human activity, then it can't sustain itself. And so it transitions from being a, a tropical rainforest into more of a savanna open um, environment which doesn't lock up as much carbon. And currently the Amazon is the largest carbon sink on the planet and it's really, really important that it remains so. But right now we're starting to see parts of the eastern Amazon is actually turning into a carbon um, source instead of a sink. Tipping points. Let's look at some political tipping points now. I'm, I'm tired of talking about the, the phenomenon of uh, climate change denialism, but that seems to be coming to an end, a rather reluctant end by its advocates. But uh, don't we see evidence of a tipping point, for example, in the last Australian election. It is a magnificent example of a social tipping point. As a climate scientist, I cannot tell you how relieved I was to see that play out, honestly, because so much is at stake and having just worked on this UN report, it couldn't be more important. But it just goes to show that when people actually start to vote uh, for people that reflect their values, that you really can see very real political change. And we're seeing that right now. And I think that that does give me a real sense of hope in terms of realising that People have said enough is enough. We want to change our 
social values around these things and start to think about a world that is a little bit more um, inspiring and getting more prepared for the challenges that we face rather than just sort of putting our head in the sand and doing things the way we've always done them. Well, someone who put his orange head in the sand was, of course, Donald Trump. And there's also hope in the election of Biden, who, even as we speak, is getting some reasonably strong legislation through. Absolutely. That's right. The I think it's the inflation reduction scheme that they put forward, um, which is a really big boost to renewable, uh, the rollout of renewable energy in the US. And, you know, we do have good... Um, progress being made here in Australia. But the really big thing, the big elephant in the room is the continued um, exploitation of our fossil fuel reserves. That has to stop. And that's something that the current government, I think, is, is going to be the big challenge for this government. I'll come back to that in a second. But everyone fighting against climate change has got exhausted. And uh, I would have thought that this little tipping point we're describing has energised people again, given them personal hope and collective hope. Absolutely. I really think that's the case. And I think it also reminds me that as I was writing this book and looking at past social movements is that this is the human story, is that this, it's a tug of war for social justice. And these these revolutionary moments that we're living through um, have happened before in the past. And I think the climate um, movement that's happening right now is really just the latest in a long line of these um, really important struggles for humanity uh, to, to, to really rise to this challenge. And I think for me, there's a lot of hope in that because it makes me realise that there's something very um, immortal really in the human spirit that wants to better our situation. And collectively, when we do act together uh, from a place of value, from a place of shared values, that really anything is possible and eventually it becomes inevitable. Denialism was made tougher by the black summer of 2019 and, of course, uh, the floods that followed have changed the tone of the discussion here in Australia. Where do you live I, when I'm not teaching in Canberra, um, I live in northern New South Wales. Uh, my husband's from Lismore. Uh, and these floods that just played out um, uh, in February and March have just been absolutely devastating to the community. Um, we've still got family that are displaced. They haven't got anywhere to go. Uh, whether to build... Um, rebuild businesses is still a question for many, many people up there. And so for me, it's been very, very difficult to watch because I realised that um, if I didn't know it already, but of course I, I do understand this as a climate scientist, but climate climate change is happening right now and it's impacting those the people and places we love. And of course, Australia is more vulnerable to climate change than some other countries. Absolutely. I mean, we're a, a nation that is uh, really exposed to the vagaries of the weather because we're surrounded by the ocean. There's just such high variability in terms of we are the land of drought and flooding rains and that is a result Coming of Coming back to your PhD. That's right, exactly. And it, it does all connect uh, because cause really we are, it is an extraordinary country, but we are really vulnerable because as we've seen just in these last few years, we can go from crippling drought into torrential rains. And unfortunately, that is the pattern that we expect for a country like Australia uh, as the planet continues to warm. Of course, the, the Northern Hemisphere has been confronted by an incredibly hot, high summer temperatures. That must have uh, accelerated a progressive attitude. 
Well, look, I think, you know, it's, it's very hard to ignore now. The fact that you can get 40 degree temperatures in the United Kingdom is extraordinary. The fact that you can get 50 degree temperatures in the Arctic Circle is, is just mind blowing. I mean, it's re- rewriting um, our atmospheric science textbooks. And I think that this is really this moment where we have to join the dots. I think people do understand what's going on. And, and really, it really is this political response that needs to be far more um, aggressive in terms of the way that we respond to this. There's a lovely uh, point you make in the book, and that is that the 50-degree day in northern Canada last year is hotter than any day recorded in Alice Springs. Extraordinary thing to contemplate. We're talking about polar areas being desert-like heat. It's, it is just phenomenal. Now, you believe that we have the technical tools to respond to the crisis globally? Yes, I do. I mean, you only have to really look at any of Ross Garneau's books over the past decade. He must be just tearing his hair out. He's been talking about this for just such a long time. But people like Saul Griffiths are now coming forward with their ideas as well. The technology we need to turn this around already exists. And that, to me, is is really the sting in the tail because we could actually just do this. We have the technology with the sunniest continent on the planet and we really can do this. And it is good to see the federal government getting behind renewable energy, but it's the, it's the opening up of uh, fossil fuel projects that really has to stop. In- Investment in renewables can see global electricity generation at 50% renewable by 2030. Yeah, so um, solar power or renewable energy is cheaper over about 60% of the world than fossil fuel generated electricity. So it's already cheaper in most parts of the world to generate electricity from renewable sources. We're talking astronomical figures though for investment. You cite a figure of four trillion. Well, look, if you think about what got rolled out for the COVID pandemic, if we want to mobilise this kind of level of funding, we can do it. So I don't see that as a barrier. I see that as an investment in the future. I see that as averting disaster for future generations. And I also see that as a really positive moment where we finally learn to live in a sustainable way on this planet. Denmark is an interesting case, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Well, they had a very strong history of the exploitation of fossil fuels and now they are the largest uh, generator of wind uh, energy uh, in Europe, which is, is amazing. And it just goes to show that you can pivot into something new. On this very day, one of the right-wing commentariat was celebrating a decision in the US to permit the building of mini nuclear reactors. You're shaking your head in sorrow. <laughs> Look, that... People just have to accept that technology, it's it's time to move on. We need to have low impact technologies. So while, I mean, the, the, the argument for nuclear power has been made time and time again. It is really expensive. Renewables exist right now. We don't have to wait 10 years to build these plans. We Look, don't have I to, agree with all waste. that. Now, one of the arguments against successfully transitioning to renewables is that developing countries don't have the resources to, well develop renewable energy industries, a hurdle that can be overcome? Yes, I think so. I read some really, really inspiring literature on this. Um, There are many countries of the world, places like Morocco and Egypt and and other areas where they have incredible solar potential. Um, 
and, and really it just it comes about from um, investing in in those um, in those places to help them develop but I think it is an extraordinary opportunity in terms of um, helping redistribute that sort of geo uh, political power do we have the the physical resources to create that many solar panels I'd like to s- say that we should just at least rise to the challenge. I mean, I'm not an expert in that in that area, but it shouldn't let us um, stop us from from actually trying. We're now working on a on a solar plant at on my prom, which will be quite large for the well, very the largest in the district, but they ain't cheap. Yeah, well, look, we're at the beginning of a revolutionary revolutionary technology, and it's. Uh, it's, it's, it's history in the making. So I think if you take the long view, that you, it's an investment in the future. Okay. Now, what policies do we need to put in place here and now in Australia? Don't hold back, Joelle. No, here and now in Australia, we have to absolutely stop uh, opening up any more fossil fuel projects. That has to come to an end. We just have to accept that is now over. And we also need to... Even with the enthusiasms, the new government is a bit equivocal on this. Look, there are still over 100 different projects that are slated um, for fossil fuel development in this country. And as a climate scientist, I find that really, really disappointing. And it's completely inconsistent with the goals of the Paris Agreement. So we can't go down that path anymore. And our stance is really important on the the, uh, international level because we are such um, huge exporters of fossil fuels around the world. So that has to stop. So it's not a matter of phasing down, but phasing out. Phasing out. It's a matter of time. This, this is going to happen. It's just getting with the program and being a leader and being stepping up and being that re- renewable energy superpower and really taking all of those opportunities on board um, and, and generating jobs and stabilising the Earth's climate. I mean, it really is a win-win. You know, when I uh, drive back home to the farm, I go through vast vistas of coal mines, still hammering away, endless coal trains heading down, heading down to Newcastle for export. We still find it very hard to grapple with the idea of leaving coal in the ground. Look, it's had its time. It's been really, really important in terms of the, the, the development of human civilization. But the science is in and we're cooking the planet. It's as simple as that. We have to stop. And so it's just coming, it's just coming to that realisation that we really just have to move on. You believe we are entering a new phase of the climate change debate. Look, I think most people do accept the science of climate change. I mean, there are some people out there who think it's all just natural variability and that's fine. They can read my first book, Sunburnt Country, <laughs> if they want to get uh, uh, their head around that. Um, but honestly, we need to be moving on to the solutions. We also need to be giving the younger generations a sense of hope, a sense of feeling that there is a future worth uh, fighting for, that there's a future that they can be a part of and that they can create. And that sustainability is not some esoteric concept. It's something we can do and something we should do within a generation in terms of transforming our planet. And so I think it is also a moral imperative to to give people an opportunity to feel hopeful about the future. When Barry Jones set up the Commission for the Future as Science Minister for Hawke, he wanted to build a bridge between science and society at large. 
that bridge still needs a lot of work. It sure does. And that's where I see the climate change issue is no longer a science issue. For me, it is a cultural issue. I think we need to stop uh, just having conversations in our own silos and we need to start thinking about these cultural changes, about the things that we value. From head to heart to whole. Exactly right. Okay. So if the argument is no longer scientific, you believe a different set of skills are required to encourage people into taking action. I do. I really do. Because I feel that until we have an emotional response to this, until we really feel what is at stake, that it's hard for people to be engaged or, or realise that um, it's something that's urgent and really needs attention. So, for example, if you had someone you really cared about that had cancer, wouldn't you do everything you could to, do, to, to try and help them? You would. You wouldn't just say, oh, well, they've got cancer, they're going to die anyway and I'm not going to do anything about it. So effectively, the IPCC report is a global stock take of the Earth's the the, the planetary health um, of the of the Earth, uh, and really we we are we are being faced with these really big decisions about w what we want to do. And the, uh, generational change is also incredibly important, absolutely. and young people are really hot on this issue. They really are, but they, they do need to find ways to be able to contribute in all sorts of different ways. So you don't necessarily have to be a climate scientist or a, a, st a student activist. There's so many different things that you can do, and I think it's about telling better stories about our future and envisioning up what it is that we want to live into. I don't want to... Um, well, I'm going to be devil's advocate. Are there perhaps risks in spreading a message of hope in that it might lead to, well, inertia? Now, that's a good question. Look, I don't think so because I think that there is a misconception out there that some people think that we're experiencing runaway climate change, we're all doomed, there's going to be a, a cascade of tipping points and so on and so forth. So I wrote that book to give people a really solid grounding in evidence-based hope. So I've given people the scientific outline of what's going on and then I've gone through and thought about all the different ways that other people have thought about before. Some of these ideas are not necessarily my own or new to me. I read a lot of really inspiring uh, books and literature around this, but it really is um, this moment that I think does transcend our era in a sense because it's it's part of the human condition. It's part of the human story. As I said, these um, social movements that really do change our world come about from enough people waking up, creating that critical mass and then saying enough is enough and we're going to create a new world. There's another term you deploy, active hope. Yeah, that was first coined, I think, by Joanna Macy, who's a psychologist. Uh, and it is this concept that hope is not just something you, you feel. It is an action. It is a, an active thing that you do. And so for me, for example, I actively do what I can to communicate climate science to people. And that makes me feel like I'm doing what I can. But if you just sit there and you don't do anything, then that is a, a passive state that I think people feel a sense of paralysis. My favourite aphorism has always been something that Pablo Casals said on one of his, I think it was his 80th birthday, only a young bloke at the time. And he was talking about the terrible situation the world was in in Spain. And then he stopped and there was a silence and he said two sentences which in a sense don't seem to fit and yet fit perfectly. He said the situation is hopeless. We must take the next step. That's a form of active hope. Spot on. So what makes you believe that we'll find that active hope and stabilise climate through sacrifice and action? Look, as I said, I think human history is just 
full of examples of moments where we've risen to the challenge. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I want to be clear about that. And it's clear in my book that there are some very, very dire situations that are unfolding right now. But how bad we let things get is still very much in our hands. Look, finally, if by some miracle, some silver bullet, some technical magic, we were able to stop the emission of greenhouse gases tomorrow, how would the planet respond? Would it heal itself in the sense of Gaia? Yeah, that's another really good question. So there have been modelling studies that show that basically once you start to stabilise emissions, the the temperature stabilises as well, which is really good news. So you don't get runaway climate change, it actually adapts. That is a really important um, result. And as a result we would start to see uh, ecosystems start to recover because they won't be under intense heat stress, but it's going to require active conservation. And so we can't just expect all this is going to play out on its own. We do need to protect ecosystems and put um, measures in place to really do our best to give nature a fighting chance. Earlier in the year, I spoke to uh, three young climate activists from around the world about their activism. What do you say to many of the young people who are suffering from profound anxiety? Hang in there. Hang in there. You're on the right side of history. The rest of the population will eventually have to catch up with you. You know, we are living through this really historic moment in human history. You're not alone. There are many, many climate scientists from all over the world who who are right there behind you, and we're not going to uh, leave you to clean up this mess alone. I've been talking to Dr Joelle Gerges, climate scientist and writer at the ANU, lead author for the IPCC's sixth assessment report, author of Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope, published by Black Ink. Now, you mentioned the perils of the koala. This program has an award it gives to to guests who are working above and beyond the call of duty. It's called the Koala Stamp, and you've just got one with gum leaf clusters. (laughs) Oh, I'm honoured. Thanks for coming in. And in the week where we said goodbye to Gorbachev, it's time for me to thank the comrades here at Lenin L. Team leader, Anna Whitfeld, Catherine Zingara, Anne Arnold, Taryn Priedko, Sasha Fegan, and sound engineer, Simon Branthwaite. See you next week. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.